You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of solids. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Eric Kahn. And I'm excited to be with you guys in this episode. We are going to talk about this part one. We're going to talk about how to get the most out of your 20s, how to get the most out of your 20s. So as I get closer to my 40th birthday, I'm just a few years away from that. I've had sort of the humorous privilege of becoming one of the old guys, right? If you're in your 20s, you think the guy who's almost 40 is old. So I'm kind of the old guy now to a lot of the young men in the church and to those who follow me on social media, again, many of whom I've gotten to know pretty well, which is an awesome experience. Now, in reality, 40 is hardly old, and everybody who's 50 or 60 or 65 or 70 is going, amen, 40, you young whippersnapper. But I think here's the point, to a generation of clueless bastards starved, For anything even remotely aimed at a trajectory of authentic masculinity, even a shred of sage advice from someone who knows the terrain is generally welcome. And one of the things I've noticed in the church, just because you're old doesn't necessarily mean that you have wisdom. Now, I don't claim to be old, but I do have some claim to a personal history of suffering and therefore to resilience as well. I've learned a few things along the way. Ultimately, Wisdom is a skill developed through patience and failure and long-suffering, and it does not, as I said, come automatically with age. Now, I've had my fair share of failure, and I have paid my annual tuition to the School of Hard Knocks. I always love the Indiana Jones quote, right? He famously said, it's not the years, it's the miles. It's not just how many years you've been alive, it's how many miles, how much ground you've covered. And in my 36 years, I've covered quite a lot of ground. There's been a lot of trial, a lot of suffering. And as a result of that, through God's faithfulness, a lot of learning and hopefully some wisdom as well. So, what I want to do in today's show is I want to pass on some of that wisdom to you, particularly if you're a younger man. Uh, I know there's people, moms, dads, listen to the show. There's also hopefully some young men. This may be a really good podcast for you. You're thinking about your 20s. And you're thinking about how do I maximize them so that when I'm 40, I'm where I want to be in life. The 20s are really a launching pad for your 30s, 40s. It really sets up the rest of your life. Hugely important. A lot of people will tell you it's time to waste. It's time to just have a good time. So you're wild oats. And I would tell you pretty much the exact opposite. What you sow in your 20s, you're going to reap in your mid 30s and 40s. And a lot of times the problem is you get to that point down the road and you're like, I wish I would change some things and I can't. So hopefully this show will help you not make some of the mistakes that I and other people have made and it will help you set yourself up well by maximizing, again, maximizing your 20s. So one of the challenges of youth is that we tend to think in fragmentary moments rather than in decades and generations. This is why teenagers do such stupid things. They don't think about long-term consequences. And a lot of it is because we simply don't have the experience, right? When we're really young, we simply don't know 
what life will be like if we say marry a feminist, right? We can't envision it. We just think, well, she's hot and I want to marry her. We don't think about 10 years into our marriage with two kids and she's a, a psychopath and we're married to her and we go, maybe that wasn't the best choice. But again, when we're young, we don't see that. We're not thinking down the road. We're certainly not thinking in decades and in generations, which is how we should be thinking. So often we fail to connect today's actions with tomorrow's outcomes. The the reason that the son in Proverbs needs a father's direction is because young men tend to lack experience, and as a result of that, they lack long-term perspective, right? They fail largely through ignorance and pride to connect the dots between today's sowing and tomorrow's reaping. This is what I was talking about before. And so fathers exist and are there in a young man's life to show them where certain paths lead over the long haul. Now, not all of us, as I said, had fathers or we didn't have wise fathers, and so we're clueless bastards. And hopefully this wisdom is going to be beneficial for you as you're walking through life as a young man. Now, the other thing that you realize when you read Proverbs is that there's always two paths laid out before young men, right? Proverbs is from a father to his son. And there's always two paths that he presents. On the one hand, there's the loudmouth feminist with seductive speech and her sexual charms bursting forth, right? She's calling to the young men, but there's also Lady Wisdom who's calling to the young man. Isn't it interesting that young men are taught by a father in Proverbs and the model is women, right? It's almost like fathers knew that young men were thinking about women. And so they're going to portray Lady Wisdom here as also a woman, right? She stands at the street corners and calls forth to the simple and says, come and follow my path. So these two paths are set against each other. And what do we find in Lady Wisdom? Like, young men, this is what you should be looking for in a woman. She's gentle-hearted and she's wise. She knows the truth and she proclaims it. She's chaste. She knows how to build a house rather than tear it down. She knows how to build up rather than tear down with her love and her wisdom. She knows how to conceal the beauty of her sexuality for the marriage bed, right? We read this later. Proverbs chapter 5 is a good example. Let your wife be like the fountain in your garden. Let it be concealed, right? Lady Wisdom doesn't say that sex is bad. She says it's very powerful and it's very good, but it's for the confines, the guarded confines of marriage. And in that context, Lady Wisdom with the father, Proverbs 5 says, come and be drunk with the love of the wife of your youth. Right? Apart from these two women, there's the path of the sluggard and the diligent man. Right? You can look at the field of the sluggard and the father will say to the son, that's what it looks like to be a sluggard. There's thorns and thistles because he doesn't work hard. Right? The diligent man will always have plenty, a plentiful harvest. So you can imagine a father walking through the neighborhood and showing his son, see that field? Lazy man. Or you see that field? Diligent man. You can see the fruit. Right? Each of these paths that we have set before us is going to produce different outcomes in life. There's the righteous and the wicked path, and the just and the unjust, and they both lead to different places. So it's important for us to keep in mind there are always two paths 
to take in life. And again, since young men don't normally do it, we need fathers to take them for a stroll, and we need to show them this is where that path leads, and we need to point to living examples. We don't just need, you know, definitions out of a book. We actually need real-life examples. And fathers, that's your job. You point to the examples and you say, see what happens when you follow that path. This is where that path takes you. So back to our question for this episode, how can you get the most out of your late teens and early 20s? How can you get the most out of those years? In other words, how can you live in such a way that when you get to 40, you're grateful for the choices that you made a few decades earlier, and you have as few catatonic regrets as possible, right? Catatonic paralyzing. Older people can tell you this, when you made choices that are bad and you look back on your life, some of them really horrible, undoable, bad choices. Maybe you had an abortion, right? Maybe you hurt a woman and you can't take it back. Right? When you made choices like that, there's the real possibility that you have paralyzing fear and regret and anxiety and depression. Now, listen, there's always hope through the gospel of complete forgiveness and restoration, but we still have to live with the consequences, and that's what Proverbs teaches us. So how do we get to 40 and not have all those regrets or have as few as possible? Right? And, and I want to say, by the way, so much of what happens in midlife crisis, quote unquote, what we call midlife crisis, it is simply a recognition and a despair over the chickens that have come home to roost. Right? We've made bad choices, we sowed wild oats, and we got thistles and thorns. Right? We got bad fruit, and now we have to deal with that. And so many times in midlife crisis, guys are looking at their life and they're saying, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Again, a lot of times because of the choices that we've made unthinkingly early in our life. So Solomon will say this in Ecclesiastes 11.9. He says, Rejoice, O young man. So right, he's talking to young men. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of, the, of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know, and here's the point, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So again, youth is good for some things. You have strength, you have vigor. But Solomon is calling young men to think about when you come into judgment and you have to give an account for your life, will you have spent your youth well? And so again, in this episode, this is going to be part one, but in this episode, I want to help you set up your 20s so that you get the most out of your life. You live a fruitful, God-glorifying life with as few regrets as humanly possible, right? What you do in your 20s will pay tremendous dividends when you turn 40, or it will leave you with a pile of regrets. So which would you rather have when you're 40? Again, what you do today, what you do every day throughout your 20s significantly matters. It sets the trajectory for your life. So again, this is part one. I want to spend this episode today talking specifically about the paths of false promise. So we said that there's two paths, and in this one, we're dealing mainly with the false promises and the false expectations, the, the, the false ideals that you can live out in your 20s and are so often tempting 
young people, both men and women in today's culture, right? These things often don't get clearly defined, but they're the air that we breathe. People don't even realize that this is their secular religion. Like these, the worldview that we have that we never think about, these things that I'm going to talk about, people push them on us. There's pressure, societal pressure to fall in line with these paths all the time. And most of us don't even think about them. We don't even recognize that they're there. Even the people who push them don't understand them, right? Like Lady Folly, these paths are also seductive, right? They promise intense pleasure. They seem really good at the surface level, and they promise to lead us to ultimate happiness. But like Lady Folly, they deliver disappointment. They deliver loneliness, right? They deliver depression and paralyzing regret. And so we need to be aware of these paths. And I want to unpack them in this episode. In the next episode, what we're going to do, part two, is we're going to talk about some of the positive ways you can set up your life for success in your 20s. What should you be doing? What should you be focusing on? What should be your mission? How should you think about marriage? Should that rank highly on your priority list? What about your career? Right? How important should your career be to you in your 20s? And then how do you order those priorities of all the important things? in a way that honors God and is going to bless you. So again, you get to 40 and you go, man, I I spent my 20s well, but I don't have 10 years of regret or 20 years of regret by the time I get to 40, right? So again, this episode, we're going to talk about false paths. And then next episode, we're going to talk about the right paths for you to walk down. So the number one false path, this is the first thing that I want to talk about in today's show by way of false paths, the longer you can delay responsible adulthood, the happier and wiser you'll be, right? That is the false promise. The longer that you can delay responsibility and adulthood, the happier and wiser you'll be. Now, it's interesting because people don't just come out and say this, although the things they say imply it and are based on this fundamental presupposition about life. Right, I want you to consider for a moment the average age for marriage continues to get pushed back. Data is very, very clear on this issue. So currently, the average American adult is getting married at 32 years old. Right, Just 12 years ago, that number was 27. So again, in just a decade, a little over a decade, it's slipped by five years. Now compare that number, 32 of today, compare that to 1950. And in 1950, the average age for marriage among men was 22, 22, 10 years earlier, and women was 20. So that's statistics and numbers, but I want you to think about that. The average person today is 32 years old when they're getting married, which is significant. I mean, they basically you're saying you spent your 20s not married. Whereas you look back at 1950 and by 22, pretty much everybody in that culture predominantly is married. So what happened? Well, we're going to pack, unpack some of those things. What happened culturally to get us to this point? So the reasons for this are largely related to cultural forces, right? We have the media and what they portray as the good life. We have education and what it calls us to. Education is formation and there's always an agenda. There's no total objectivity. People, everyone has a worldview, including your teachers. And so there's a, been an agenda that's been pushed, right? And so much of education, media, government, they've portray, portrayed traditional gendered piety and biblical marriage 
as boring and outdated. While they emphasize the adventurous lifestyles of the sexually promiscuous, right? We're bombarded by this all the time. The, the really glamorous single young men and women who jet set the world in order to produce the next blitz of Instagram worthy selfies. Everybody's sleeping around and fornicating, but it's portrayed in the media as a good thing. It's portrayed as the path to happiness. And when you read magazines, Again, you watch TV, you watch your TV shows on Netflix or Amazon Prime. This is what you see. Every show is people fornicating, but it's always portrayed in a positive light. Well, this has slowly eroded the culture, right? This shift in emphasis also owes largely to the apostasy of the American nation and the sexual revolution of the 1960s. So very intentional agenda being pushed at all levels of culture and society here. Right, It's got its roots in the feminist movement and leftist Marxist movements, both of which were working powerfully to radically reshape the cultural norms upon which America was formerly built. Right, again, colleges and universities, as have been well documented, have continued to promote the destruction of cultural institutions, and predominantly this means the family, Christian morality in general. Popular media also played a pivotal role in eroding public morality. Just think about TV shows like Friends, right? It, it helped a whole generation normalize and celebrate sexual perversion, fornication. Like every episode of that show, if you remember watching it, is basically who's sleeping with who, but it's all cool, right? It's never portrayed in a negative light. You never see the consequences of sin. Sin is always celebrated. Right, you're being lied to, in other words. Right, it means that young people with that image of life, the friend's image of life, they could satisfy now their sexual appetites without subjecting themselves to the structures of marriage and household. And the TV shows, again, shielded people from seeing what the consequences of that sort of lifestyle would be. Right, think also more recently about shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which celebrate really bored rich people. Right? They celebrate bored rich people who do not work for a living. So, so many of our youth today, they think that that's like the expectation for your life. And so having a job and sticking with it is just like, so, I don't know, not chic? Right? People are like, well, I don't like that job because it's not fun. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Our grandfathers would have seen the absurdity in that. Right? And then you have millennials and Zoomers who have become known as Time Magazine called them the me, me, me generation, right? Their parents were the me generation, but now we've got the me, me, me generation, right? We have a hard time committing to much, and we're increasingly embracing lives of just constant drifting, piddling, right? We tinker at relationships and jobs, but we don't really know how to invest long-term. Our generation is not predominantly been the generation of building things, institutions, families, households, right? We've been the generation of running away from those traditions in in sort of an ironic way. We're sort of the BLM generation in the sense like throw a Molotov cocktail at cultural institutions, walk away, and then just wonder why everything sucks, right? The concept of generational investment is incomprehensible to most people in the millennial and Zoomer or Gen Z generation. 
everything, including relationships and jobs and houses, we view them all as disposable. We ghost people. We just toss relationships. We date on Tinder and then we just throw that person away. We had our hookup, we had our fun, and now we're done with it. Right? We're an uprooted and unrootable generation that is aimlessly wandering about, not knowing where it's headed, where it's going, or what it's even doing. Right? A lot of this is the result of 75 years of cultural and moral decay. That's what we're witnessing before our very eyes today. Unlike our parents, millennials aren't all that interested in establishing nuclear families either, because why? That's time, that's commitment, right? When it comes to living with a spouse and child, this is, think about this, data shows that just 30% of millennials did this in 2019. Just 30% of millennials live with a spouse and a child. You know, that's not what their parents were like. They've diverted quite a bit from the boomers. But think about that, 30% of millennials live with a spouse and child, that's as of 2019. Compare that to boomers at the same age, 39 years old, I think, is about the oldest millennials right now. So compare that to the boomers. At the same age, 70% of boomers were married. 70% at the same average age were married, lived with a spouse, and at least had one child. So you can see that our culture has really been eroded and is decaying on the familial front. Again, it's people being just deterred from wanting to have commitments. Now, it's safe to say that it's more acceptable than ever to delay the responsibilities of adulthood in exchange for the cheap thrills of whatever feels good in the moment. We clearly see that's what the path of the bulk of our generation are doing. It's only getting worse with Gen Z and Zoomers, as I said, who are getting their driver's license at much later ages, into their 20s even. They're engaging in relationships much, much later, if at all. Right? Most of them, data suggests that most of them are having relationships via smartphone and only smartphone, not even in person. Gen Z or the Zoomers. They're emotionally fragile, as Gene Twenge's book points out. iGen, right? This generation raised on a phone, protected at all costs, by their parents from things like the violence of words, right? Safetyism has consumed the culture around them. And as a result, they're more fragile than ever. This isn't an insult. It's just the reality. Sociologists point to this all the time in the research that's been coming out since about 2010. So one of the questions we have to ask is, is this responsibility aversion successful? Has it worked in our culture? We told people for generations, avoid responsibility as long as you possibly can. Has it made society better? Are people happier? Did the path of responsibility avoidance lead to the promise that we were given? Well, I think the simple and obvious answer is no. Right? Everyone in the millennial to Gen Z camp are more anxious and depressed than ever. Right? Studies show that 57% of adults age 18 to 29 report that they are anxious and depressed. 57%. Another 46%, and these are between 30 and 39, report the same symptoms. So it's predominantly the younger age group. Like young people who traditionally, like they're the ones who are happy and carefree, 
But look what's happened to our generation. They've been taught to live in fear and anxiety. They don't have the resilience to deal with life's difficulties. And so what's happened to them? They're emotionally fragile. They're depressed. They're anxious. Suicide rates are at an all-time high for young people. Right? Keep in mind, researchers and psychologists were sounding the alarm about increasing rates of suicide and depression before the pandemic. And since then, the mental health of our young people has only plummeted, and pretty drastically, right? Because of the social, social isolation and the atmosphere that the media presents of constant fear, division, polarity, etc. Right? You can see the, the major problems here perpetrated by the people who say, we're going to help our young people by locking them in rooms and having interactions that are only through a smartphone. And then we're going to go through the pandemic. You can't go to school. You can't talk to people. We're going to protect you from a virus that is 99.9% survival rate. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to be depressed. Because guess what? Humans, including young people, especially young people, are social creatures. Right? This term for some millennials, but mainly Gen Z or iGen, right? The term snowflake, it's probably accurate. I think we need to stop using it as an insult in many cases, especially with your, your, like you're the parent and you raise them and you're like, oh, they're snowflakes. Yeah, because you did this. Like, take responsibility. But snowflake is probably adequate. Look how unique I am. And also look how fragile I am. Right? No, again, nobody wants to take responsibility, including the parents who made their kids in this fragile mold. Like, if you don't like millennials and you're a boomer, or you, you know, they, some of them come from uh, the end of Gen X, right? Again, recognize you did this. Death rates here's another statistic for you death rates from drug overdoses for people aged 15 to 24 rose by 20%. 15 to 24 death rates from drug overdose, 15 to 24 rose by 19.75, almost 20%, from 2006 to 2015. And this is according to a study published in the peer-reviewed Journal of Studies on Alcohol in Drugs. That's well-documented as well. The rise in opiate uses, prescription drugs, people are depressed more than ever. Again, has it worked? The answer is no. Unequivocally, no. Delayed responsibility is more prevalent than ever. Like, it's so easy to do. There's so many safety nets, welfare, your parents. So many things that you can fall back on, never work, never get married, never move on with life. It has not delivered the promised happiness that it said it would, right? It's just the opposite. So here's my point. The dominant cultural pressure that comes from peers and parents and educators and every sphere of society that says that you should delay responsible adulthood as long as possible, guess what? It's a lie. The messaging is strong, it's pervasive, and it's completely untrue. And so what do you need to do? We'll get into this in the next episode. Taking responsibility as early as possible is a good thing. Teaching your young, young children how to be responsible, how to work with their hands, how to put in a full day's labor, right? How to see problems and think, I should take responsible action here, right? How to be men of action and courage. Masculinity is the glad assumption of responsibility, like we teach this to our 10-year-old or 12-year-old or 14-year-old. That's not too young to start. In fact, that's late culturally and historically speaking. Right? You should be exposing your kids to relationships with other adults. Get them involved in your small business. 
Have them sit on on meetings. See how adults interact. My kids are like, when they were like 10, even before then, I was like, okay, we're going to start preparing you for marriage. And people were like, you're crazy. I'm like, yeah, well, I keep pushing for young marriage. We'll get into this in a minute. But if you're going to do that, you have to do the hard work of preparing them. And that's hard. And it means discipleship for your own children, teaching them how to work and provide as men. Right? What about my own life? I'm, I'm thinking back when I was 20, um, 18, 19, 20, right in that range. Well, I heard the same things from the fervent zealots of secular humanist culture when I told them at the ripe old age of 19 that I was getting married. Right? That, surprisingly, that did not go over very well. And it wasn't just like people were like, I disagree. People were like passionately opposed to me. Right? Many of the people who were most opposed were quote-unquote Christians. They would call themselves Christians. They went to church and they claimed to be Christians and there were parents and church leaders and friends who held like interventions. Like these interventions would have been appropriate if I had confessed to, I don't know, a long-standing habit of shooting heroin. Maybe if I was cooking meth in the basement, right? Or I was running a regional sex trafficking operation. Seriously, people told me I was throwing my life away. It was that drastic. Eric, don't do it. Don't jump off the bridge, Eric. You're never coming back from the abyss that is marriage. First of all, what a horrible view of marriage. Right? Completely unbiblical. Where was the teaching in the church? I often wonder that. Right? All these people were saying, don't throw your life away, Eric. You're going to make a decision that you regret, which is both stupid and immature. It's going to ruin you forever. You can never recover from this. Marriage? Like a Christian dude being like, hey, I don't want to have sex with my girlfriend. I want to get married to her. And people in the church were discouraging me. Right? They believed inherently deep in their bones. They believe this narrative without ever thinking about it. They believe this narrative that responsibly embracing traditional institutions would be catastrophic to my life. And so they pushed the opposite, these secular ideals with religious conviction. And you know, so much of it, I look back, I think because so many of those women in particular were raised by Cosmo and not the scriptures. Like if they had read Colossians instead of Cosmo magazine, even though they went to church, they probably would have been better off. I don't know. I'm just guessing here. Right? That was so much of the problem is like they watch friends and they watch all this garbage and then you're like, well, what does the Bible teach about marriage? I don't know. But I know that Ross and Rachel are sleeping together. Like, that is the level of maturity in the church. Again, it's affecting our young people. And I was one of them. All these people religiously convicted that I should not get married when I was young. One professing Christian told me, (laughs) I still look back on this, it's crazy. This person said to me, just live together for a while first. You know, see if you're relationally and sexually compatible. A Christian advocating to live together and have sex to see if you're quote-unquote, sexually compatible. Again, stop reading Cosmo. Start reading your Bible. Right? The same Christians who are willing to welcome transgender bender children into the broader swath of our family and life were the same people who were irate at me and my wife when we said, we're going to get married and we want to honor God. They were more upset at us People in our life, in the church, friends, they were more upset at us than they were if people had come and said, I'm going to mutilate my body. 
I'm going to have top surgery. Oh, honey. We love you no matter what, but you... Monsters getting biblically married at a young age. Why would you destroy your lives? But again, it really makes you ask the question, what trough are you drinking at, culturally speaking? What trough are most Christians drinking at? It's not the Bible. Right? To be fair, I want to unpack this a little. To be fair, it had a lot to do with people giving the advice from the boomer and Gen X generation who had gotten married, but what did they do? They lived by secular feminist ideals regarding gender roles. Right? These are feminists in marriages married to nice guy dolts. Right? They were all indoctrinated in the secular religion without even knowing it, most of them. Right? They were miserable in their marriages. They were depressed. Their husbands were pushovers. They were naggy, brawling wives. And so these were the people unhappy in their marriage after a decade or two who were very quick to advise against marriage. Like, don't do it. Horrible decision. Right? Very few people, in my experience, are very happy in their marriages. And get this, it's mostly their own fault, right? People want to blame shift and they want to be like, well, I just married the wrong person. Maybe you're the wrong person. Maybe you haven't become the right person. Maybe you need to look in the mirror. Maybe you need to take the plank out of your own eye, right? For example, older married women who counseled me, like, you know, not upon my request, unsolicited advice, which is always my favorite, Older women who I had known a long time as bossy and rude and loud and dictatorial in their homes, well, they were the ones warning me against marriage because they were quite clearly unhappy in their own. They were quite miserably married to a child they'd raised and mothered for decades. Right? And what do they do? As if the institution of marriage in their mind and not their own nasty little hearts were to blame for their disgruntled existence. Right? Likewise, sex-deprived men who were wed to those brawling and controlling women would often lament to me their bygone golden college days of casual sex. Like with longing, you know what I'm talking about. Oh man, don't do it. I remember. Before the old ball and chain, when I just slept with whoever I wanted. Oh, it was so great. Don't throw it away, they'd say to me. You're really going to regret it, Eric. You have all the time in the world later to be miserable in marriage. Wow. Great advice. Again, mostly from people claiming to be Christians. Now, meanwhile, those from my peer group, here's the other way to look at it. My friends, people like that, they lived by these culturally accepted wisdom of delay at all cost. Well, well where are they today? So I, I was kind of taking stock of this the other day, kind of looking at Instagram, figuring out where people are. Uh, a lot of mixed bag here, honestly, but I would say that most of them are either on the spectrum of miserable or dead. Seriously. Um, what they espouse and lived by, it has not produced a very God-glorifying harvest, if you can imagine that. All that was happening was that they stayed immature longer, right? People who put off responsibility, maybe they put off really investing in a career, buying a home, whatever it was, starting a family, building a household, being involved in church, avoiding marriage, whatever, right? All that happened was that they delayed maturity, right? They stayed immature longer, which meant that they had a harder time adjusting 
to adulthood if they bothered with adulthood at all. Many of them haven't ever. Right? Prolonged singleness meant stacking up more regrettable sexual experiences, right, which robbed them of joy in the marriage bed. So all the people who are like, oh, dude, it's groovy. I'm going to just smoke pot and sleep with whoever. Yeah, well, later in life, like sex and marriage became problematic, to say the least. Now, a lot of this is tied to porn use and stuff like that as well. But again, following the words, world's pattern for sexuality is not a recipe for human flourishing. Now, recently, one friend about the same age as me, I remember this, he had spent really most of the 20s, I was married, having young kids. He spent most of that time ridiculing me for starting my family. He used to always joke with me. He'd go out to a party after work, and I'd go home and go to my kids. And I'd always get made fun of for that. Oh, you get to go home to the old ball and chain. Right? That whole, you know how single people are, especially in their 20s. They think they're living the life, and so they're giving you crap about it. But it's interesting, now that this person is almost my age, he recently confided to me, he said, I wish... He said, I wish I hadn't wasted my 20s. He said, all those sexual escapades were meaningless, man. It's only robbed time from me that I wish I was building a family. I wish I would have done what you did. Because here's the reality. Even the most brash people in their 20s, man, you can't escape time. You can't escape the fact that you're going to get to a point in your life, unless you die, you're going to get to a point in your life and you're going to have regrets if you lived foolishly. Like my friend... Same age as me, almost 40. He's finally getting married, f- finally starting a family, but also has a lot of regrets about the last two decades and how he spent them. So, you know, just think about simple practical things like, you know, my kids are the age where I get, I get, they're teenagers. I get to go do fun things with them. People always ask me, you know, 35, 36 years old, you have a 15 year old? What? When did you get married? When did you start a family? Said, we started early, baby. And so now you get to enjoy a lot of those things. And listen, you know, if you're 40 and that's just ha- when you happen to get married, great. God honors that. Again, we can repent. That I'm not saying that there's irreversible damage there. But for a lot of women, there is. Right? You get to 40. A lot of women finding out, well, I thought I could just do IVF. I thought I could freeze my eggs. Which is a psychotic thought if you really think about it. I thought I could delay marriage. There is actually a biological clock here. And it's almost like our ancients, our ancestors knew what they were doing when they were getting married much younger. Right? We can look at people who live at home for too long while working meaningless and disposable jobs. They never really invest in them. They quit every five months. Right? This results in a pretty miserable existence at 40. Right? Because they wasted their 20s being frivolous and doing nothing. Right? Entry-level jobs are exciting when you're 18. It's kind of fun. You know, I was a waiter. Oh, I worked at this real t- retail place. I worked at that retail place. I had enough money to go party on the weekends and drink beer. Yeah, well, that kind of sucks actually really bad when you're 40 and you're about to hit midlife stride and you're still working entry-level jobs because, let's be honest, you never really put much effort into your career. You're just a ski bum, right? You never invested in your career. How many people I grew up with did that forever? Right? You, when you delay meaningful investment in your career, you're just kicking the can down the road. At some point, you're going to have to saddle up, you're going to have to do the work, and you're going to have to keep at it for the long haul if, if you ever want to build wealth, get to the point where you actually enjoy your work. 
where you find purpose in your labors, like that's not a given. I had to spend my 20s doing jobs that more or less I hated. Right? Only now in the last couple of years have I gotten to work that's like, wow, I really enjoy this, but I had to punch my ticket. I had to put in the time. I had to earn my stripes. Right? That's kind of how life works. You got to earn it. So many people today don't want to earn it, but you can do that in your 20s. So here's the deal. God created men and women to bear the weight of responsibility. Uniquely, in your late teens and early 20s, you have actually an insane amount of physical energy, stamina, etc. God's gifted you to carry tremendous load in your 20s. You can work late. You can carry heavy loads at the office. You can make lots of babies if you're a mom. And for most people, you're, you're shockingly, your body can handle quite a bit. You're resilient. Just ask a 40 or 50-year-old if they had the energy they did when they were 20. I know I don't. Right? The marriage institution, households, children, diligent investment in your career as men, that's all part of God's plan. So lean into his plan. Lean into your dominion taking. Lean into your calling as men to work and to protect, to be providers, to be working on your career, to be building a household with the wife of your youth. Women, embrace motherhood. All right, be fruitful in your 20s. Trust me, when you get to 40, all, all my friends who are women who are single at like 35 to 40, like they're miserable and they're like, man, I should not have wasted all that time just being so diehard in my career. I should have been thinking about marriage because now it's like too late. How am I going to have kids? I want kids. I want to be a mommy. Right? Why? Because it's in your DNA. So you can make those choices as a teenager, as an early 20-something. And that's radically going to change the course of your life. Don't put off the responsibility, but take it on. That's what Christ calls us to do as mature Christian people. Right? Is it easier to go drinking and clubbing with your gal pals than it is to be a responsible mother? Yes, but it's also much more fruitful and rewarding. Right? For the women listening to the show, don't be Lady Folly. Right? Don't be the seductive harlot who puts on her tube tops and is trying to get whatever guy is going to roll in into the club tonight. It's disgusting. Right? You should be looking for a man who's going to provide for you and take care of you and who you want to help make babies with and raise children and have a legacy. That's what you should be thinking about. This is what your 20s are for, for setting this trajectory. Think about this. When you put off responsibility, the only thing you're really putting off is blessing, maturity, and growth. Like people always told me, like, you're too young to get married. You're not mature enough. And the reality is, look, if you can work a job and have a can of beans that you can feed your family, you're probably okay. Can you afford a, you know, like we did, like ratty apartments? It's amazing what you can endure when you're 20. Right? But the problem is, like, 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old dads who spent, like, 30 years building a career, they expect a young man marrying their daughter to be at that level. That's not going to happen. Right? If you can feed, reasonably feed your family and provide just enough, it's okay. You can make it. It's good for young married people to go to go through hard things and not to live posh lives. We did it. Right? When the treat of the week is like getting like a diet coke at the fast food joint, that's your treat because that's all you can afford. That's good. Those are memories that I cherish with my wife. So again, stop putting off responsibility because when you do that, you're putting off God's blessing and maturity and growth. 
you're also putting off your ultimate happiness and flourishing, which I'm going to expound more on in just a little bit. The other thing I would say for young people, it is so quintessential that if you're young and you want to get married, you need to find people in the church who can help disciple and mentor you. There's going to be so many landmines along the way where if you have an, uh, just 10 years older than you, couple who has been through it, understands it, has learned how to communicate and resolve conflict, that is going to be huge for your marriage. You can say, hey, we're having this conflict. What do we do? Or we're struggling to discipline our child. Or what should we do for education? You need sage guides in your own life, in your own personal life, who can pray with you and walk you through those things, who can show you what is it supposed to look like in the home when you do family worship, right? You need mentors. So definitely don't go the journey alone, but be willing to take responsibility. So that was point number one. Point number one was the longer you can delay responsible adulthood, the happier and wiser you'll be. Of course, that is lie number one. So moving on to point number two now. Point number two, make college and career your priority instead of establishing a household. This was something that I heard all the time. It was just this powerful undertow, undercurrent in our culture. So the question is, why does this happen? Why do people say that you should prioritize college and career ahead of establishing a household, getting married, starting a family, etc.? Well, I think in our corporatist materialist society, it is essential, like a core conviction of this materialist faith that you get yourself into the workforce as soon as possible, right? This is your top priority. So in this world, careerism has been elevated to a spiritual path to a sort of materialist salvation, right? And when you read the early feminists in the 60s and 70s, it's very much put in salvific language. Feminists promised women that corporate life would free them, right? Betty Friedan, you know, the, the hidden problem or the whatever she called it that women are facing, like they're having to be on tranquilizers and all this because they're bored out of their gourd. They don't live a meaningful existence. And what did she say? She said the freedom that you'll experience is through getting a corporate job and then being on the pill and having abortions. Like that's going to set you free. Well, what a lie. Anybody who's experienced anything of that path is a complete lie. But we were told as women and men, listen, pouring yourself into your career, this is going to unlock the keys to a hidden paradise of material wealth. It's going to be accompanied by comfort and ease and luxury. This never before experience in human history, this utopia of material wealth and gadgetry, and Amazon's going to deliver it all to your house in two days, right? This is going to set everybody free and we're going to live happily with meaning and purpose. That didn't happen, right? But what happened? The, the deification of wealth and corporate work, with it came this new industrialist emphasis and mindset that called us away from the home and called us to forsake the family. A lot of people, Chris Wiley, Nancy Piercy, uh, Rory Grove's book, they deal with this, how the Industrial Revolution really destroyed the household, the productive household. All right, so early 1800s, Industrial Revolution comes to America, and Americans start leaving the farm and the home for the factory in unprecedented numbers. The home stops being a place where people are productive in a home economy together, right? You're no longer completely dependent like you were on the other members of your household. And so people are fractured. The home is fractured. 
People move from rural locations to crowded cities. Right? Violence escalates. Police forces then become necessary to quell the violence and keep it at bay. Right? Men and women were reduced to corporate cogs in a wheel of factory time clock production. And so the household became nothing more than a way station as individual members passed each other as they're going to the next shift, the next event, they're going to bed, they're getting a meal. We just pass each other by. And then no longer is the household about a productive economy of reliance and love and interdependence, but the household just becomes a a stopping place for a little bit of cheap entertainment, right? That's why marriage relationships have deteriorated so much because we don't actually help each other in the dominion task anymore. We're not actually doing anything meaningful. We go to a corporate cubicle, which is no different. That's just today's factory work. We go to a corporate cubicle and we do mind-numbing work, whether men or women. We drop our kids off at daycare. We come home. We eat like frozen dinners that are gross and disgusting, right? And then we watch a little TV and we go to bed. That's, for a lot of people, that is the entirety of their human existence. And so, of course, it's meaningless. It's futile. People are not satisfied. Well, fast forward to the 1960s where all this has ramped up, right? It's, it's been distilling in the American people for almost 100 years, right? And then you get prominent feminists like Betty Friedan, Helen Gurley Brown. Helen Gurley Brown is a longtime editor-in-chief at Cosmopolitan Magazine, both of whom were just rabid feminists pushing freedom through promiscuity, the pill, abortion. Right, but they partnered behind the scenes with corporate executives and companies to levy a massive marketing campaign that sold cubicle work as salvation from a life of meaningless drudgery. And anybody who's worked in a cubicle, like this is comical. Like that people actually thought that like I wonder what the men were thinking. Have you ever watched uh, The Wonder Years and like Fred Savage in the show his dad is like absolutely 100% miserable in his job. Like the men who lived through the 50s, family men, good men, a lot of them. But that was miserable work. It was not good work. It was not enjoyable work for a lot of people. And then you're going to tell the women that going and doing that is freedom? Be like, yeah, I don't think so. So again, in America at this point, women were told, like the men, go to college, get a career, take the pill, avoid marriage, and she could be set free. This would set her free to work in a cubicle. Oh, gee, that sounds amazing. What CEOs saw, however, was that single and childless women would be much more easily exploitable in the workforce. By the 1980s, even prominent feminists, however, like Betty Friedan, what did they do? Well, she admitted that the women's movement had been a failure, right? It hadn't made women happier. It hadn't made women healthier. It merely exposed and exploited them. So did the right to vote. Look that one up. There's a red pill moment for you. Maybe women voting was actually horrible for women because it thrust them into the marketplace of culture and they were no longer protected by their husbands. No-fault divorce exploded. By the way, most divorce is initiated by women in the 80 percentile. Initiated by women. right? And yet through all this, we've held on to the lie that college and career are paths to freedom for men and women. To this very day, we still believe this, even though it's been proven true, right? The propagandists keep spewing this nonsense. Marriage, by the way, is discouraged, 
particularly in a person's 20s, because that can wait till after college. It's interesting to me as well. Uh, recently, uh, I started following, th- through some ladies at our church, I started following this account I thought was really cool. It's like homesteading, homemaking. Uh, Shay Elliott, I think it's, she's got a podcast. It's like Homemaker Chic or something like this. I can look it up and put it in the show notes. But it was, it was just really cool stuff. She has really cool photos. Um, and one of them was like in the home, there was like flowers and she was in a pretty dress and she was smelling these flowers. And all I did was I took this photo and I shared it on Facebook and I said something to the effect of like, uh, the home is a woman's glory because it really was. It was like a very artistic print. A lot of people liked the print. It just looked really cool and it, it was inspiring artwork. And um, I shared this and there's like a hundred comments on Facebook and people are like, dresses are oppressive. These, By the way, these are mostly Christian women. Dresses are oppressive and sure, I would wear a dress if I didn't have actual work to do. I mean, it was, people were flipping out about this because you shared a picture of a woman working at home. Like this is the, this is what's crazy. If you shave your head and have top surgery, people are like, you go girl, guy, whatever you are. Slay kingish, queenish, I don't know what the language is for that incident. Right? They're proud of you if you do that, but if you get married and you want to be a homemaker, people are like, they think you're a witch. Like, they think you're horrible. You know, no longer is it like, our culture thrives in like, utter pure subjectivity. Right? There is no moral truth. Do whatever feels good, except being a homemaker, except getting married young, except starting a family. One thing we have to come to grips with is, Living according to scripture, living according to the patterns of gendered piety is spiritual warfare. Satan hates this. And so he's going to discourage it at all costs. So that would be my other encouragement to people. Listen, you're going to be opposed if you want to follow God, but don't lose heart. Like this is biblical. It is good. It's good to pursue marriage and want to pursue marriage. It's good to be ready for marriage. Right. But again, in our culture, marriage is discouraged, particularly if you're in your 20s especially if you're early teens, right? This is true for men and for women. And the reasoning is that establishing a household is a luxury item. It's like, to people today, it's like an accessory and not even a really cool one, right? It can wait until after more important work is done, like getting your career started and taken care of. Money first, marriage and family. Second, well, it reverses all the biblical priorities. And particularly, I think it's damaging for women because the reality is men should be pursuing their career during this time while building a family. Uh, Men should certainly be pursuing a career. That's good for them to do. But women really, you know, your your 20s, it would be a really great time to find a husband. It'd be a really great time to start a family. And a lot of times, if you're consumed with a corporate career, you simply don't have time for that. By the way, Helen Gurley Brown encouraged women not to have husbands or children because she said it will allow you to be free to pour your life into your work. So like, there's a correlation. People know that. By the way, Helen Gurley Brown, major hypocrite. She was like happily married for 50 years. She told other women not to do it, but she did it. You know, we were talking about this the other day, more hypocrisy. Betty Friedan beat her husband. (laughs) Literally, he would go to work with like claw marks on his face. His secretary was like, did you get clawed by a tiger? No, I got clawed by Betty Friedan, the hero of feminism. Well, they got divorced. Right, So what has happened as a result of this ethos of you know, delaying responsibility and family? 
while birth rates have plummeted, women and men are more unhappy than ever. Divorce rates are at an all-time high. College-educated women, by the way, are the majority of those who initiate no-fault divorces. In fact, college-educated women initiate a shocking 90% of no-fault divorces and carry substantial amounts of household debt that they then spend decades trying to work off. College is often not good for women. Say that in today's culture, and you are just one of those nasty white evangelical patriarchs who likes John Wayne. Right? Families aren't being established until much later in life, and all of society suffers because of this. Then those families, when they do exist, are being ripped apart by divorce because they didn't live up to somebody's Oprah-esque Christmas Prince version of a romantic relationship. You remember Oprah with Adele. Adele divorces her husband, and Oprah says, well, I totally understand, sweetheart. I mean, what a great lesson for women. If you're not 100% happy in your marriage, then you should get a divorce and go find 100% happiness. Where in life are we ever promised, nor should we expect 100% happiness? Like many things that Oprah has said, probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right? It turns out that prioritizing career over marriage and family has had ca- catastrophic effects on society. Materialism hasn't led to flourishing in society or in families or marriages. In fact, it's been pretty much the opposite. We're more vain, bored, and we have a deeper longing for meaning that is not filled than probably we ever have. So number three, what's the number three path and lie that young people face? Travel the world and go find yourself. It's one of my personal favorites. I've seen a lot of people do this. I call this the addiction to experience. I don't want a house, man. I'm just living for the experience. You might call it the wanderlust drug, this prolonged irresponsibility, but it's all good because I'm a traveler. This became popular in literature, Jack Kerouac and stuff like that on the road. It's really been popularized by Hollywood. Uh, Just this drifter type person who never settles down. Even in Westerns, the Western literature, right? The Clint Eastwood type drifter um, was sort of glorified. The reality is that this life of wandering and travel is really actually horrible and it sucks. It's a complete lie, but it looks good on your Instagram profile pages that you follow. And everybody looks like, how do they live like this all the time? Right. In response, I think a lot of this was in response to the boomer fixation with material wealth. Like our so many of our parents were obsessed with their homes and building a 401k and having a nest egg and living on the golf course and you know, being able to watch Fox News all day long while yelling at the TV. Like that was really important to them. And so I think their kids were like, Man, I that that there's something empty about that material wealth. And they were absolutely right. But what they then did is they were like, now we're going to idolize experiences. It's all about the experience, man. It's about the experience of traveling the world. It's about the experience, whether you're in debt or not, the experience of just living on the side of a ski hill all the time. Right? And what they did in turn in order to fund this, like you, you can't really have a family when you're living like that because you can't really afford it unless you're a trust fund baby. So they didn't want to start a family or own a home. So they exchange these for experiences, but they're still exchanging God's pattern, family, marriage, children, for something else. And so it's idolatrous. These are the people that you watch on House Hunters 
who are in the Bahamas trying to buy a home. And it says like their budget is $2 million. And they're like, well, I wonder what they do. Because by the way, that is the millennial pastime. That's my generation is sitting around wondering how do people afford their lifestyle? But anyway, back to house hunters. This couple, very young, 20s something. They've got a $2 million budget. And then it'll tell you like the middle of the show. It's like, he's a speech therapist and she specializes in underwater basket weaving. You're like, how in the heck do you have a $2 million budget? Well, there's a word for that, and it's called trust fund babies. I hyphenated it so it's only one word. These are truly bored individuals. They are the rare few who do nothing but skip around the Pacific Islands and the French Riviera and Ibiza, right? It makes it seem like everybody could live like this. It's like when you watch, um, what's the dude who is in Wolverine? Right? And he gets all fit and Jack Hugh Jackman. Like Hugh Jackman gets jacked. Right? Remember Hugh Jackman? And they're like, you read like men's fitness and they're like, you too can be like Hugh Jackman. All you need is nine hours a day to work out, like four hundred grams of pure raw chicken. And also sidebar steroids. And you too can look like this. Right? That's what happens with these experience addicted people like social media fueled experience addiction right we follow our celebrities how many people today by the way like they're like the catholic church has saints did you hear what kim kardashian did like i would go to prayer meetings and people were like we need to be praying for kim kardashian um yeah i think you need to get a life is what you need and like experience some like real people in the real world who cares about what happened to these celebrities. Like, I feel like they're just like there for examples and jokes we can make fun of. Kidding. Right? They live this mythical lifestyle of constant travel and vagrancy, and their dad has a sex change. And what in the world? First of all, if you're a Christian, why are you watching this? Second of all, people don't actually live this way in the real world. It's like an illusion. But what do you get as a result of this? You get people who spend their 20s traveling the world, racking up credit card debt, trying to find themselves. I wonder, do they ever find themselves? The answer is no. They never really do anything meaningful or productive, but they do travel the globe. They fly to Europe to decry capitalism and bounce around on bicycles from hotel to hostel to hotel to whatever else those things are called. And guess who funds all of it? Well, that's right, daddy and his capitalism job. Dirty capitalism. The same job that paid for her liberal indoctrination at the hands of a feminist socialist revolutionary back in the States. Yeah, that's really great. The question, again, are people who do this, the jet setters, travel, chase experience, are they better off? In my experience, the answer is clear and obvious no. Once again, the Peter Pan instinct, well, it only makes it harder to grow up when or if you finally get around to doing it. And some people never do. Without the roots, and by the way, is there anything more desperately like horrible and just like depressing than like a 60-year-old dude who's living like he's like a 20-something like bar crashing, wedding crashing, like sleeping around, still trying to live that lifestyle? There's nothing more like, I don't know, just depressing to me than that. Like, I don't want to be... I'm not, you know, I don't want to be 40 like that. I don't want to be 60 like that. 
right? I want to be able to look back and have like 30 grandkids and great grandbabies and be like, look what I left behind. A godly horde of like faithful Christian men and women. Be fruitful and multiply. I want to be like Abraham, right? But without the roots of family, these Peter Pan travel the world types tend to not grow into strong redwoods. You can't grow into a mighty oak or a redwood. You can't bear fruit, weather the storms of life if you don't put down serious roots. Right? Redwoods have gravitas. They have weightiness because they put down roots. They stayed in one place. They invested in one woman. They loved their kids. They loved their community. Right? Vagrancy is something that's actually killing local communities. Because nobody wants to stick around long enough to actually work through problems. Right? It's just about being a selfish, drifting soul bound for the endless breeze of emptiness and despair. No thank you. It's something that we have to guard our children and ourselves against. When you delay responsibility, you are also delaying, again, a meaningful, rewarding life. There's no experience as good or biblical or godly as building a household. You want to chase experience? Chase the experience of being a good husband who loves his wife. It's refreshing. Find a woman of high moral character and in masculine fashion, with masculine energy, kings, put a baby and put lots of babies in her, but hopefully one at a time. Right? Even Mr. Desperado in the Eagles song realized it. There's a time when you've got to come to your senses, when you've got to get down from your fences, and you've got to build a life with the woman you love. So that was number three. Now we're on to number four. What is the number four path that we always hear as young people that leads to destruction? It's a bad path. It's this. More sexual experiences will lead to greater long-term satisfaction. Right? When you're 18 and somebody's like, you should have sex with as many people as you want and you're a pagan, you think, wow, that's pretty cool. That seems pretty awesome. It's not. And the statistics and the data bear this out. And we already talked about the feminist push in the 70s, 1970s and 80s. Right? The whole point was to decouple sex from marriage. And it was based on the false promise that this would lead to freedom. This is at the heart of the feminist lie. Right, that rampant casual sex will set you free. By the way, rampant casual sex is only possible when you're pushing abortion, murdering your children, or the consequence of that rampant sex, and you're on the pill. Right? Sterile sex is gay. Being fruitful in sex is wonderful and glorious. We need to get away from sterile sex. It is generally speaking, it is not God's plan for his people be fruitful and be multiplying right that's how you obey what do we learn from all of this right what do we learn from all of the rampant fornication that's gone on and been celebrated in our country well people who have had higher rates of sex partners outside of marriage are unequivocally less happy especially if they do eventually get married but in any event they're still less happy and less satisfied with their sex lives they live with more guilt and less long-term sexual Satisfaction. The Atlantic, among other places, has written about this in the article. They lamented, quote, fewer sex partners means a happier marriage. Like they're disgruntled. Dang it. It's like God was right. They're not excited about the data, but even they have to point that that is what the data leads to, right? The, The less people that you have sex with, the more fruitful your sexual life will be. 
be a virgin, get married, have sex with your wife a lot, make babies, enjoy that sex, and that's going to be satisfying and fulfilling. Not having rampant intercourse with total strangers drunk at a frat party. Right? The reality is there's nothing dumber than taking young adults ages 18 to 25 who are at the peak of their hormonal sexual energy and telling them to avoid marriage. It is literally a disaster waiting to happen. Right? What we need to be doing is recognize that maybe God made them this way and he gave them the sexual drive for a very specific purpose and that purpose was to drive them into marriage. And so maybe what we need to be doing, and I think what we need to be doing, is encouraging our young people to be prepared for marriage and then to get married. Why do you have all this sexual energy when you're 18 years old as a man? Because it should be driving you to prepare for marriage. And then you should pour that energy out into your marriage, into the wife of your youth, into your children. Right? You have all that energy for a reason. Use it for what its intended purpose is. Right? We need to encourage our sons and daughters, just like Solomon did, to find a worthy spouse and to get drunk with their sexual love within the confines of marriage. Right? I always found that passage fascinating in Proverbs 5, 18 and following. A father saying to his son, delight always in the breast of the wife of your youth and be drunk with her sexual love. Dads, can you say that to your sons? Can you encourage them in that way? What kind of encouragement and exhortation do you give them? Hopefully, it's along the lines of Scripture and Proverbs 5. Yes, this means more emphasis, as I've said, on preparing our youngsters for marriage. Like, you can't just send them into young marriage and think that's automatically going to fix the problem. In fact, if they're not prepared, it could be quite disastrous. Right? But what we need to be doing is preparing them through giving them responsibility as early as possible. Right? Younger marriage should be the norm, not putting it off until past your peak sexual years. Again, cultural disaster. The old adage, by the way, that marriage means the end of your sex life simply doesn't have to be true, nor is it the biblical norm. So, another thing that people told me, right? Like, dude, like you're getting married, say goodbye to your sex life. It does not have to be this way, nor is it the biblical pattern. If you doubt me, check out Song of Solomon. Not only is it a literary masterpiece, it's like one of the most highly sexually erotic things you might ever read, especially if you know what the, what the Hebrew poetry actually says. Right? With proper care, your sex life can be a bountiful garden and a feast in which, as lovers, you continually drink from each other's sexual love. Again, think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, do not abstain from one don't hold out in your marriage sexually, right? Figure out a frequency that's normal and regular and good for both of you. In my experience, married life has meant insanely frequent and enjoyable sex. I've had single guys rib me about how as a married guy, I must not get any action. So I always respond with these questions. I say to the young single guy who thinks he's just this stunning young buck, I say to him, okay, cool, man. How often are you having sex? Oh, dude, all the time, all the time. Go to clubs all the time. I say, cool. Like, like how often? At least once a month. And I kind of chuckle as the old married guy. And I just say to him, wow, man, that's pretty sad and sparse, right? Marriage can be so much more fruitful 
It can be God's gift and it can make you be so much more satisfied. And I look back on those decisions and it's like, people were dumb. Yeah, if you're terrible to your husband and you're terrible to your wife and you guys never work through conflict, then you won't have any sex, right? But if you work at your marriage and you put a priority on it, and again, you do that hard relational work and you have clear expectations, sex can be a truly wonderful part of marriage. So number five, lie. Number five lie is that corporations offer the greatest degree of security and growth in your career. Again, we're talking about things that people lie to you about in your 20s, and you can follow these paths and they can really lead you to ruin. I'll say this, first of all, working for others, particularly in corporations, can serve several phenomenal purposes in your life. And I work for corporations for about 15 years. Um, it, It can be a really great experience if you use it properly. Right, if you're plundering the enemy, so to speak. So for one thing, you can build valuable skills while you're in a corporate job. You can get training while being paid. I often did that. I would work jobs just so I could get the experience, and they were still paying me, so it was great. You can learn leadership skills. Some of the uh, training I had at Valvoline Instant Oil Change, for example, they had one of the most phenomenal management leadership programs of any company I've ever been a part of, and I got to participate in that as a store manager. And it really was phenomenal. It taught you how to deal with like assertively and directly, but not aggressively or passively with conflict situations and people in the workplace. It taught us how to lead well, how to have a business plan. They taught us how to run inventory, right? How to manage a P&L sheet. You know, it was a lot of really great stuff that I learned how to do. So again, working for corporations can be a wonderful thing, right? It's also possible think about this, to learn the ins and outs of a particular industry, you know, who the key players are, how business gets done, how it's transacted, so that maybe one day you could start, say, your own business in that same industry and figure out where that niche would be. It's really hard to do that if you haven't worked in an industry before. So again, working for a corporation can really help you out here. What I would say, however, is that you have to be on guard here for the boomer mindset. And I hate to necessarily trash boomers. I'm not trying to trash them. But the boomer mindset, the boomer worldview was not exactly correct anymore on this point, right? It was this whole go to college, get a great job, it'll be super easy, and you'll just make lots of money and you won't have, you'll be able to pay off your student debt, whatever. Well, the problem is in an inflationary economy post what, 1973, we have tremendous problems with inflation, what the cost of college actually is these days versus what you get. And the fact that when everybody goes to college, it doesn't really actually benefit you that much, right? I look back at my career and it's like, I learned very little in college, right? Most of the things that I learned in my job as a journalist were actually just working jobs. And I look at it now and it's like, I still work as uh, in the media industry. And I think if somebody came to me and they didn't have a college degree, I'd be like, okay, well, can you do the work? Are you teachable? Are you trainable? I don't care, right? And more and more, I think we were finding that College is not necessary for a lot of the things that people are doing. I would especially say, if you don't know what you want to do, college would be like the worst thing, right? Don't go to college so you can get a psychology degree, right? It's going to be worthless and you're going to have student debt or you're going to have pay all this exorbitant amount of money, right? There's so many more options out there in terms of vocational schools, jobs you can do where you're getting paid. Um, You know, one of the things like being a lineman, electrical lineman. 
and I had buddies making six figures after five or 10 years being electrical linemen and like they're going to school and the electrical company is paying for it, right? They don't have tuition. They're getting paid well. They're doing meaningful work. They're doing good work. And they're learning a, a trade and an actual skill. You can do sorts of things like this with uh, a lot of the durable trades, painting, find somebody who can teach you, train you while getting paid, etc. Now, I'll also say there's also this fixation lately with like the side hustle stuff. I've done a lot of side hustling and, you know, working for yourself. A lot of that can be really good too. But don't get me wrong, like working for a company can be a really positive thing if you use it well, right? What we need to get out of those, this idea that working for a corporation is just this really secure thing, right? You're going to end your career with a 401k and a pension. You're going to work at one place for 25 years. That world is gone. Right? The average worker today changes jobs between two and four years. Right? And we've seen after the great shamdemic that people are leaving their jobs in droves. I think because people are working at home, they're realizing, man, I actually hate this place. And they're treating me like garbage. And they're telling me if I don't put this chemical in my body, an experimental drug in my body, that I'm going to lose my job. Right? That's what they're telling me. I actually don't like this place. I actually don't like giving my life away to people who hate me. Thank you very much. Right? As life in a cube during the pandemic has demonstrated more openly, corporate employees really are wage slaves. Right? I've used that term. People get offended. That's literally what you are as a wage slave. You can be fired for not putting this experimental drug in your body. You're probably not free in that situation. That's pretty highly suspect. Here's my point. Corporate life is not as secure as you think. These companies get bought and sold constantly if they're publicly traded. They're not loyal to you, right? There's constant turnover of the people on your staff and for you as well. Advancing your career in these companies generally means moving locations and positions every couple of years. 401ks are often a thing in the past. Health insurance is simply not what it once was, right? For that reason, and many more, I would encourage people to check out, again, I've done shows on this, but the book Durable Trades by Rory Groves. At least be thinking, if you're working at a corporation, at least be thinking about alternative means of building a profession, building a career, doing something that's durable. Because ultimately, I know for me and my family, like we need to be in one area. We need to burn the boats. We need to be plugged in with one community of people where we can plug in and plow for decades, right? You're just never going to build anything if you're moving every two to three years. And I decided for my family, it's like, I'm going to do freelance. I'm going to build the side hustles over time. I'll be able to move away from a corporate environment. We're not playing this game anymore, right? I'm tired of being screwed. I'm tired of being used by the corporate system and then just spit out. I have no relationships because we've always moved because corporation, all that stuff. So again, I would encourage people to start in your 20s, have a side hustle. It doesn't have to be something that becomes your main job right away. It may take a long time to build that up, but at least be thinking about those things long term. Right? This way, when you're ready financially and otherwise, you can start your own business, you can get into a different field of professions, one that you really want to be in, you can be a freelancer, whatever, consultant. But the, here's the point, the sooner you work for a small business or yourself, the closer you're going to be generally to be doing meaningful things that you enjoy with and for people who share your worldview. Right? And in that scenario, you're going to be better off. It sucks working for people who hate you. Number six, spend now, worry about payments later. This is the uh, debt mentality. So this is a false path. But it's a path that people are often encouraged in their 20s 
and then it can set you back for a long time. I remember graduating from college and we were going to a church and we were participating in a Dave Ramsey uh, financial peace university course. And one of the things they ask you to do early on is like all the couples in, in the course, you know, it's like a small group setting. They were like, Hey, just, you don't have to say who's who, but like how much debt does everybody have? And I think there were like 10 families in there, not home debt. So all debt except for homes. And I think the average for everybody there, because, you know, we just got out of college, people had cars, the average debt per couple was like $80,000, right? What are you doing when you're getting into that kind of debt in your 20s? Well, you're really setting a trajectory for the rest of your 20s and 30s. And again, it's away from wealth. And if you're in debt, you're a slave, right? That's what scripture tells us. The borrower is slave to the lender. So again, this is really detrimental. Think about this. The average amount of student loan debt in 2020 after leaving college is $30,000. That's just student loans. That's not cars. That's not credit card debt. That's not anything else, right? That figure in 2020 is $5,000 higher per average than it was in 2010. So again, that number has gone up drastically. The average individual consumer debt in America is a whopping $93,000. Individual debt in America, $93,000. And in 2021, the average credit card debt was $5,600 per person. So if you're married, over $10,000, right? This is pretty staggering. Debt is a problem and we're encouraged at every turn to get into debt you know, you go to college, people trying to get you to sign up for credit cards, all this nonsense. Today, our young people have been trained to embrace this debt mentality. Buy now, worry about the payments later. So you got to avoid this pretty much at all costs. If you don't have cash in your pocket, don't buy it. That means you don't have money for it, right? If you have to not go to college and go to a trade school, or you have to work while you get through college, fine, great, do it. Debt, bad. It's just absolutely horrible. It train wrecks people's lives. That's why this payoff National school debt thing is such a big issue because it's, it really is train wrecking people's lives. And these recruiters are getting people to come to college and spend astronomical amounts of money on, on an education that's worthless, right? To pay for administrators is not really paying for the education even. You know, you remember the line in Goodwill Hunting where Will Hunting, she, she spends like, I don't know, $100,000, whatever on her MIT education. And he goes, congratulations. He's like, you spent $100,000 on an education you got for $5 in late fees at the public library. Right? And he's right. Go to the library, learn, read, whatever. But we need to get away from this idea of going to massive amounts of debt to get college education that we don't even need most of the time. Right? So again, just to iterate, reiterate what scripture teaches, the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, I found this out early in marriage. We made some stupid financial decisions. Fortunately, not many of them because we really didn't have any money. But I remember one of those was like, our family was growing. I was like, I'm going to buy this new car. Not new, new, but you know, fairly new car. We're going to put some serious coin down on this car and we're, we're going to buy it and we're just going to have a payment every month. Well, despite being new, it turned out to sort of be a lemon. It was always in the shop. I was always stressing out, having to take it back in. Transmission goes out, you know, and then we got to deal with a wheel bearing that goes out. And I'm always frustrated and we're really, really tight on money, right? We're barely able to pay each month. It caused incredible amounts of stress just thinking about paying it off. 
And finally, my wife and her wisdom, she was like, hey, let's go back to the Dave Ramsey model. Like, we should have listened, you know. We, we rethought about it. We saw the folly of the debt. So what do we do? We sold the vehicle. We shared this tiny little Honda Fit for like a year, right? Commuting to and from work. My wife doesn't have a vehicle some days. I'm riding with other people to work. What did we do? We saved up our money. We had cash. And then we used that cash to buy a cheap used vehicle. Right, but it taught us a valuable, valuable lesson. It wasn't comfortable, but even less comfortable is the reality that debt is a crushing form of slavery. Right? It robs your joy. It limits what you can do with your time, your gifts, your talents. That experience made me realize like I never want to do this again. Right. And so college especially is a stupid form of debt. Because of that, I would encourage people not to get into debt for a higher education. Again, trade jobs programs you can do on the cheap, online learning, whatever it is. Realistically, many professions simply don't require college and uh, you don't need it to be successful in a profession. So those are the six paths or pitfalls that I would warn against in your 20s. I'm sure there's many more. I'd love to hear your feedback about what some of those pitfalls are, but those are some of the ones that I experienced and my wife experienced early on in our lives. Definitely appreciate everybody who does listen to this show. Again, we've had a ton of new supporters this week, which is a tremendous blessing. I want to thank everybody who did sign up on Patreon or at ericcon.com. If you haven't done that yet, would encourage you to do so. Support the show. Helps further this work. We put a ton of work and research into the show. And uh, yeah, your support is really, truly meaningful. One other thing I would encourage you to do if you get a chance, go on to iTunes. Be sure to go on there and leave a five-star review for us. Definitely helps get us out to more and more people. And we're encouraged as more and more people hear the show, people's lives are being transformed. Again, as supporters, you get to be a part of that work. By the way, you can go to the store. You can get t-shirts. You can also go in there and find pint glasses, right? Stay frosty. You can drink your beverage in the Stay Frosty Hardman podcast mug. And again, we appreciate your support. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs>